Oh, it really is a day for celebrating. Millmania has swept the world. Move over COVID. John Millman has won his first ATP title in Nur Sultan in Kazakhstan over Adrian Manorino, 7-5-6-1. And if that's not cause for celebration in what has been a torrid year in 2020, I don't know what is. This is Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Febo, and what a show we do have for you today. John Millman, celebrations all around with his maiden ATP title. Nobody more deserving on the tour. We've got John Alexander to join us, the um, MP for Benelong, but he's also a tennis legend and has beaten some of the biggest names in our sports history, along with Chris Guccione, who also has a winning record against Rafael Nadal. But we can't do the show today without Joel Frucci. And Joel, how are you, mate? We What a day we have right now. Oh, what a day indeed, Val. Uh, yeah, just soaking up the Millmania vibes. The sun's shining in Melbourne, zero cases. Good day, good day. Um, yeah, public holidays. Well, actually, not really a public holiday, but kind of a, uh, a four-po public holiday. Um, and, uh, of course, tomorrow it is, uh, is the public holiday in Melbourne. So it's a good day. Can you get into the show? It really is. And you're right. The sun is shining. Things are starting to, to open up. I went to the shops yesterday, bought some clothes face-to-face instead of online, and it was really, really nice. So um, it is cause for celebrations. But, look, we have to start with the feel-good story of the week. John Bloody Millman got his first title in his third attempt. It was 2018 in Bucharest. Unfortunately, it was Marco Cecchinato that got the better of him there uh, in straight sets. Milman had his chances there, couldn't get over the line. 2019 in Tokyo at a 500 event, lost to Djokovic in the final. And then this year, Nur Sultan, Kazakhstan. I'm not going to lie, I did kind of predict it last week. I said, if there's ever going to be a chance for Milman to win his first title, it is going to be now. And... I'm 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 pumping my own tires up a little bit here, but it, it was a wonderful yeah. week. He um he beat some players of really high pedigree, including Tommy Paul in um in the quarterfinals. He was down five two in the um in the third set tiebreak and came back and won uh, won the last five points of the match to um to claim it and was just genuinely unbelievable. Then against Francis Tiafo in um in the semifinals, was down a set, came back and won six four six four. Um, also knocked off Fernando Vadasco in the second round after getting a bye. So all those players are of the highest pedigree. And for Milman to, and then Adrian Manorino in the final. Um, Manorino, obviously, Joel, you've come on this show and um, and spoken your feelings before about how you feel about his game. <laughs> but <laughs> um, the first set, Manorino had five breakpoint opportunities, couldn't convert any of them. Uh, Milman was really strong on second serve, um, wasn't losing a lot of his points and. Um, yeah, in the rallies, he just started to get the upper hand and then um, and then was in cruise control from 5-5 in the opening set. Millman won uh, eight of the next nine games to claim his maiden trophy on the ATP. And look, it, it's such a feel-good story. If you had have said at the start of the year that John Millman would be winning his first title this year in a severely condensed schedule, I'd have said you were dreaming, but it's happened. Yeah, and so well deserved. He's obviously a guy, as we know, that's overcome a lot of adversity in his career. Um, and yeah, all we can really say is just we're we're so happy for the guy. And he was clearly soaking it up afterwards as well. He was really seemingly up and about on social media. He was getting around everyone, uh, in, including us. But yeah, he yeah, liked our post and shared it on he his story. Liked our post. Breakpoint podcast, of course, but um, look, I mean, in terms of the caliber of players that he beat as well on the on the road to to that final, really, really good. Um, Francis Tiafo as well. I mean, he Big Foe beat him at the U.S. Open in in the second round in, in five sets. So it was it was great that he could come back against the Big Foe, who when he's on, he can really, really turn it on. Um, I guess it's just a case 
limits of, of, of when he can do it because he's a little bit inconsistent. But nevertheless, um, yeah, he was brilliant against Manorino in, in the final as well. Really, uh, after he won that first set, yeah, he was, um, as you said, Val, just in absolute cruise control. And he's now up to uh, 38 in, in the world, which is, um, I think, five uh, adrift of his career high, which is 33. So, look, if he has a really good finish to the season, who knows, he could potentially get himself a seeding for the Australian Open. Yeah, exactly right. And um, looking at Paris this week, he's um, he's in the draw there. I think he's up against Miamir Kecmanovic um, in the opening round, but I'll, I'll double-check that. But it's just such, with all the hardship that Milman has faced over his um, over his career and with all the injuries, he's had to do things the hard way. He hasn't done things in any way, shape, or form that's been easy. Um, he's just worked, and he's had some big results, beating Federer at the US Open in 2018, um, that, that US Open quarterfinal. A couple of finals here and there. Davis Cup exploits, the ATP Cup. He's just, he's thereabouts. He's just always, he's always got a smile on his face and he's always just there ready to put in the hard yards. And it's just, it's such, it's so rewarding even as a tennis fan to see John Millman actually lift that trophy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you summed it up pretty well. I think not really much more we can we can say about it. And um, it was great as well, just gauging the reaction online. Um, just how many players, people were, were getting around him. I think it really reflects just how loved he is, uh, at the very least, uh, in, in Australia. Um, yeah. And certainly as well, as, as we know, and we spoke about it a couple of weeks ago on the, on the show, clearly by his peers as well, because he's um, on the ATP Play Council now. Exactly right. And even Blair Henley, um, our great friend who we had on the show a few a few weeks ago, even said it herself. Um, she tweeted last night a John Millman blooper reel, like in case anybody didn't know, he's the most one of the most liked players on tour, and um, he's always got a smile on his face, and yeah, it, it was just great to see. But it is Miamir Kecmanovic in the first round of um, of Paris. The winner there takes on a man that's been in, uh, well, in some severe controversy this week, Alexander Zverev. This has been, well, his week started off at zero, and it got to 100 within a minute, um, oh. pretty much. Um, because, well, first off, his, um, his ex-girlfriend announced that, that she was pregnant, um, and said that he um, she would fight for sole custody of the child, which is um, obviously means that things haven't ended in in a great way there. But then uh, later on, his um, another ex girlfriend of his Oya Sharapova um, says that the, the world number seven tried to strangle her, and the um, the the statement from her was, "I was a victim of domestic abuse. The first time this happened at the beginning of the, this relationship, there was a quarrel, and I got hit with my head against the wall with so much power that I sat on the floor." In August of that year, in 2019, I ran out of the hotel barefoot. I was standing on the streets of New York, didn't know where to go and what to do. He tried to choke me with a pillow, hit my head against the wall, twisted my hands, and at the moment, I was really afraid for my life. Um, this was the far from the first and not the last situation where I, I was raised um, in a relationship. Um, it was the scariest because at some point, I couldn't breathe. Zverev has said, had his say on the issue, and I'll read his statement on both fronts. Um, so, yeah, ab absolutely, completely bizarre what has happened this week. But um, So, the last days were quite challenging for me. I will be a father at age 23, and I'm very much looking forward to the child. Even though Brenda and I are no longer together, we have a good relationship, and I will live up to my responsibility as a father. Together, we'll take care of the little person that is about to grow, but I don't want to say uh, more in public about this private subject. I'm sure that Brenda and I can manage without the media involved. Then, there are unfounded accusations that my ex-girlfriend, Olga Sharapova, which I read in the media today, 
They make me very sad. We've known each other since we were children and shared many experiences together. I very much regret that she makes such statements because the accusations are simply not true. We had a relationship, but it ended a long time ago. Why Olga is making these accusations now, I just don't know. I really hope the two of us can find a way to deal with each other again in a reasonable and respectful way. So, it's... Uh, this is something that's... It's completely... It's shocking. Um, it, look, the description is, is very, very vivid, Joel. It seems as though... Like, it wouldn't be that vivid. I, I, I don't know. You, you can't make assumptions in, in things like this. And they, they just seem like a very vivid account of what actually did happen. But... I guess you, you you just don't know innocent until proven guilty. I guess I I just I don't know. I I really don't know. It's such a tough tough situation. Yeah, look, it's a delicate issue, but I mean, for the moment, all you can really do is you have to believe the the accuser. I think. Um, again, I'm I'm a big believer that no no victim would would come out and say something like that if it didn't happen. Um, and I think we're at a point now where um, you know, it's it's such it's such a pertinent issue around the world that it's just it's just wrong to to doubt victims. So um, yeah, look, I am very much in, in the uh, I'm very much in the in the camp of, of believing what Olga Sharapova has had to say. Of course, there will be a, a natural course of justice if it goes down that path, and and uh, I'm sure a court will will decide what's fact and what's fiction. But for the moment. Um, all, all I can really do is, is believe what she's saying. Yep, and and it seems as though the people have turned on Zverev. There are a lot of comments, um, which Ben Rothenberg put on Twitter, um, on the Paris Masters page. Um, they genuinely, some people are even putting a Z with a lot of asterisks after that because they're using his name as kind of in that Voldemort mold as a curse word. And um, it's yeah, and I stand with Olya. It makes me sick to see him all smiley. Um, stop giving abusers platforms. So uh, the public has turned on him and, th and this isn't a good look for, for Alexander Zverev at all. And um, it's look, if, if it's, if it's true, um, jail time must be on the cards. Must be. Well, yeah, well, I think what's important, I think what's important uh, right now is, is believing Olga's story because um, until it gets proven one way or the, or the other, um, you know, if, if, if people come out and, and doubt her story, then that can have the flow-on effect of people that have suffered don't want to speak up. Yep. So I think, and this is such a high-profile case as well, yep. um, I, I think that's what's really most important about it. It's so high-profile that you, you simply have to believe what she's saying for the benefit of not only her, but the many thousands and dare I say millions of, of people in, in, in the same boat around yep, the world. that have been abused by high-profile people that haven't been able to speak up. And I'm sorry, but it, it, like you, you see all the footage everywhere. You see all the footage of, of a lot of high-profile people and especially at those, um, those Jeffrey Epstein parties. And you mm. just hate to think what has happened in, in those rooms. So look, let, let's not get too political. We'll, um, we'll continue on with the tennis, but um, just another thing that Ben Rothenberg did tweet that you alerted me to, Joel, um, that Adidas is set to, well, his contract with, uh, well, Adidas and Zverev, their contract ends at the end of the year. How will the market react now? Well, there's no doubt, Bell, that Adidas um, aren't going to react uh, or look upon this particularly favourably, I don't think, um, regardless of whether he is... Uh, 
uh, guilty or not guilty, simply being accused of something like that is enough for brands and rightfully so to uh, to jump off their their athletes. So look, I think yeah, I think Alex is in a bit of trouble, certainly in, in that sense. And um, I guess what what manufacturer is, is going to be willing to take him on board while um, he's got this hanging over his head is going to be is going to be interesting because I don't think too many will, will be uh, willing to do that. No, not at all. And if you remember back to the Tiger Woods scandal back how many years ago now, um, a lot of sponsors dropped him pretty damn quick, um, Powerade or Gatorade being one of them, um, and a few others as well. And same with Maria Sharapova with what happened there. I think Porsche rescinded their, their alignment with her and, um, and so did a lot of other places. Um, Nike did hold, hold, um, hold fast on both Woods and Sharapova, so... Um, jury's still out on what Adidas will do, but that's the least important thing right now. What's important is that Olya is okay, um, and that fingers crossed. Um, this can all get resolved very quickly so that um, so that she's not under too much controversy for too much longer. But a little bit more news coming from this week. Well, it's been a really newsy week in tennis. It hasn't happened very often this year, but we've finally got one. Um, Simona Halep, the latest tennis star to test positive to COVID nineteen. She um she announced it on Twitter. Um, so she's already called time on 2020, but, um, yeah, disaster for her in her training and preparation for 2021. Hopefully it doesn't, um, hamper her too much like it did with Grigor. Um, and also, um, Paris Masters and ATP finals will be going ahead, um, despite the new lockdowns in France and England, um, all behind closed doors. Um, it's going to be weird, but it's for the best. Absolutely, it's for the best. And from our point of view, glad that they're going ahead, not least the uh, the year-end finals uh, in London at, at the O2. And, of course, we're going to be seeing Andre Rublev there, as as we now know, we are. after he won in Vienna his fifth title of the season, knocked over Lorenzo Sonigo 6-4, 6-4. Jeez, Andre's had a good year, hasn't he, Val? Yeah. Wow. Well, he is – he – the guy – is an out-and-out superstar. The way that he has played this year, most match wins equal with Djokovic on 39, the most titles unmatched, Djokovic on four, he's on five, um, and he just continues to get better and better and better, Joel. And what even what Roger Federer said last year, they said which player in 2020 is going to make waves. Roger Federer said Andre Rublev is going to do something special. Well, he has well and truly done something special and even more because what he did this weekend against Lorenzo Sonigo last night, we'll get to Sonigo in a second and what he was able to do, but just genuinely phenomenal. And 13 from 13 at the net, he's worked on his doubles game, he's got his volleying down pat up to scratch, and that's helped him a lot this year. He's just he's on fire, two Grand Slam quarterfinals to boot as well. Yeah, and I'm excited about what he can do in London because we've seen in the past, and we have, we did chat about uh, a bit about this last week, but just the kind of players that in the last few years that have won the year in finals, like Grigor Dimitrov, like Alex Verev, like Stefanos Tsitsipas. Yeah. The last three have all been quite unique. Yeah, kind of in that in that in that bracket. Um, it's followed a bit of a trend. They're kind of in that in that bracket where they're players that are kind of just on the precipice or. They're these rising stars, this part of this next gen that are just waiting to just burst through. So I do wonder if if Andre can can really consolidate what he's done this year and, and really push for the title um, or potentially win it. I think it's yeah, it's 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 really exciting. I can't wait to see what he's what he's going to do and 
um, especially with with two Russians there with Daniel Medvedev as well. It's going to be a really exciting year in finals. Um, and yeah, I guess we're going to have the quality that kind of makes up for the the loss of, of, of the crowd there as well. I can't wait. Yeah, me either. I'm really excited. And two hot-headed Russians, what more could you ask for? Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> um, BP said it last week as well. And um, Look, it's it, it's so exciting. And, um, and, and Rublev has played well, but the man he beat in the final, what a week he had. Lorenzo Sonigo, lucky loser. Diego Schwartzman withdraws. He gets his spot. He beats Djokovic 6-2, 6-1 in an hour and eight minutes. How do you do that? Simple answer, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. I woke up and, and saw the score. I was like, what the hell has just happened here? I, yeah. I was I, I said I said upset of the year, but you went you went one better and said well actually you went ten better and said upset of wait well decade. upset of the decade. Yeah. I mean we are in a new decade, but it's still probably the upset of the decade. Well, it's upset of the last decade. Or maybe maybe Steve Darcy over Rafa at uh, or Sergei Stakovsky over Federer at Wimbledon. Or um, Darcy over Rafa at Wimbledon as well. But this one, Lorenzo Sonigo, uh, I don't know. It's the first time Djokovic has ever lost to a lucky loser. Um, and, and to beat the world number one for a lucky loser, it does not happen often. Does not happen no. often. Um, I think the last time would have been... Was it when Evgeny Donskoy beat Federer? Or was, no, I don't think it was. But um, Kevin po- the wonderful Kevin Pollard has, has tagged me in some tweets this week. And... He just, the man is just an absolute stats machine on Twitter. You can follow him at Football Ruse. And he sent me the stats here. So, um, the, so Lucky Losers beating world number ones. Uh, Sonigo over Djokovic, Vienna 2020. Uh, Thompson over Murray at Queens, 2017. Uh, Chorich over Murray in Madrid, 2017. Um, Guillermo Cañas uh, over Roger Federer, 7562 Indian Wells, 2007. And then he beat Federer the next week as well in Miami. Um, and then Sandon Stolly over Thomas Musta in Dubai, 1996. So two Aussies causing the upsets there. But um, uh, amazing. Uh, g- just genuinely amazing what uh, Lorenzo Sonigo was able to do. Because Djokovic has looked almost invincible this year. And you put it, uh, you summed it up perfectly on our social media. The three people to beat Novak Djokovic this year. Lorenzo Sonigo, Rafael Nadal and Laura Clark. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Laughing at your own bit, work there. Uh, yeah, I did get a little bit cheeky with that. I, I kind of had to, but just just on Sonigo as well. I mean, this is the kind of run that can elevate a guy or 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 a girl if it just happens to be in that situation. But this is the kind of this this it's the kind of run that can elevate a player. Oh to yeah, the next the next level of their career because Sonigo's run in Vienna has got him up to thirty two in the world. So if he can sustain that to the end of the year. He's got himself a seeding for the Australian Open. That could be absolutely huge for him. And just on a, on a, on a broader note, looking at the Italians in the top 50, absolutely phenomenal. You've got Matteo yeah. Berrettini at 10, and we speak a lot about the, the depth in Italian tennis a lot. Matteo Berrettini at 10, Fabio Fognini at 16, Sonigo at 32, and Yannick Sinner at 44. Yep. Superb. Yep. And then you've got guys like Lorenzo Musetti, um, Seppi's still playing from time to time, and uh, I think he'll retire soon enough. Stefano Travaglia at number 74. Marco Cecchinato at number 79. Salvatore Caruso at 81. Um, there's just more and more and more. And Gianluca Magher on uh, 98. So there's just more and yeah. more and more that continue to get inside that top 100. And that, that country, the way that they're investing into tennis, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with soon. And I reckon within five years, we're going to see Russia and Italy absolutely dominating the tennis world. 
and it's going to be phenomenal to watch and we're really looking forward to it. But we're also looking forward to this. John Alexander about to join us on Breakpoint Podcast. And our first special guest on today's show is a man that, well, he an absolute champion of the tennis game. He was a former world number eight in the on the ATP in singles and a very handy doubles player as well. A two-time Grand Slam champion, synonymous with the Australian Open on Channel 7's coverage. But now he's the member for Benelong, John Howard's former seat in uh, federal parliament. His name is John Alexander. John, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Breakpoint Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. How are you? Pleasure to be with you, Val. Now, um, how's first things first, I guess, in uh, in Parliament, how's things gone with COVID? Uh, I think everything would seem to be quite busy for you this year and uh, with everything that's happened, and there wouldn't have been many breaks for you. No, it's been a very unusual year. That, that word unprecedented pops up all the time, but yeah, Parliament has been cancelled from time to time. The last uh, couple of months, it's been on about a, a 50% capacity. Uh, if Victorians, uh, members of parliament want to come up, they've got to isolate for two weeks. So there's a big cost to that. Um, and so we've uh, even on, on the weeks that we've had parliament, we've had about half present. And then the uh, laws regarding social distancing reduce that further in the actual chamber. So there's a limit on numbers actually in the, in the chamber. So uh, it's uh, very different. Uh, it's dominated, uh, firstly, from a health perspective, and then um, the impacts that this has had on our economy and that will continue to have uh, on our economy. There's a sort of second wave of impact that's uh, now being uh, realised, and there'll probably be third and fourth waves as uh, this works its, its way through the economy. So uh, there's a, a, lot, a lot to be done. Uh, in planning our recovery and rebuild. Yeah, well, it's it's not surprising with everything that's happened this year, and as you said, unprecedented. It, it definitely is. But um, we'll move we'll move back to the tennis career, uh, John. And five hundred eighty four match wins in singles, eight singles titles, and wins over the likes of Fitzgerald, Nastasi, Gilbert, Creek, Laver, Borg, Noah, Edmondson, Rosewall, and Guillermo Vias as well. Looking back now, how proud of you are those? Uh, how proud are you of those achievements and what you were able to accomplish throughout your career? Oh well, it was uh, a little bit like politics. It was a very unusual uh, time or uh, a unique time uh, in tennis when I started travelling in 1968 uh, with uh, Harry Hopman. Uh, there was four boys in the team and two girls. Uh, Dick Creeley, Phil Dent, Bob Gilton and me, and Leslie Hunt and Kerry Harris. And uh, it was the first year of open tennis. So the Australian Championship had already been uh, played, where Bill Barry beat one Gisbert in the final, but none of the professionals played, and even the Spanish team that had played the uh, Davis Cup, only one Gisbert remained to play. Manolo Santana, who'd won, won, won the US Open, won the French, he chose not to. And uh, so it was, you know, one of those depleted uh, championships and not take anything away from Bill, who, who beat those who came. Um, and uh, so we started off playing uh, in Italy. And uh, then when we got to France, the French Open that year was the first open Grand Slam event. 
And so there was great speculation how the, the great you know, professionals would go with the, with the amateurs. And uh, so you saw you know, the Lavers and the Rosewalls. Emerson had turned professional a couple of years before Open Tennis and Stolly. Um, and even Gonzalez was there, and um, uh, who was then by that stage you know, 40 years of age or more. Um, against the uh, the then you know, who, the amateurs who played the previous year, like uh, Tony Roach uh, and uh, John Newcomb, Arthur Ashe, and Stan Smith, and, and that next next uh, vintage that was coming along. So it was a very 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 interesting times. There was uh, uh, there was uh, mass strikes in Europe at the time. There was uh, uh, you know sort of riots in the street. Um, particularly around Port St. Clue where we were staying. And uh, this all drove more crowds because people weren't working, so they came to the tennis. And so there was great crowds and great matches and uh, the, the professionals uh, prevailed. Uh, I think the last four was uh, Rosewell played Gamino, uh, Andres Gamino, who'd beaten Santana in the quarterfinal. In, uh, and uh, um, Labor beat... Uh, Gonzalez, who had beaten Emerson in five sets in a quarterfinal, so uh, it was uh, yeah, an extraordinary effort for him, and uh, and uh, that followed on that that went the second of the Open events. The first one was the British Hardcourts played at Bournemouth, uh, where Rose will beat Labour in the final. That as he did in the final of the French. Uh, I my for my part, I got to the. Uh, uh, the second round, I think I beat Alan Fox in the first round in a very long five-set match that he had to default at about 10 all in the fifth set with cramps. And then I lost to Bob Carmichael. Uh, I was down two sets. I got back to two sets all and lost the fifth. Um, so that was my, my first French. And you... You played in, it was a very tough time, I guess, playing because a lot of those sets and early, the first set, second set, third set were all advantage when you would have first started out. How did you cope with playing those grueling sets, say 11-9 in the first set, and then you had to go back and do it all again in the second? Well, yes, um, that's right. There was no tiebreakers mm. at that time. Uh, and quite often the tournaments uh, didn't even provide drinks on the side of the court and didn't have seats. Uh, on the side of the court, uh, and the time between points was far shorter. Um, so it was very different to how tennis is played now. Tennis slowed down with, you know, especially Lendl, who you know, really forced the policing of the time between points uh, because we're having matches that were going 6-3, 6-3 and taking two hours, whereas previously a five-set match would take two hours. Um, so, you know, Things had changed a great deal, but um, yeah, it was yeah. The the matches could be very long. We played a Davis Cup match in Calcutta on very fast grass with an Indian ball that was very fast in 1974, and I would imagine it's still in the Guinness Book of Records. If there's still a Guinness Book of Records, it's the longest Davis Cup uh, tie in history because uh, of there being no tiebreakers and the conditions. Uh, you know, allow the server to you know, hold serve very easily. So we had very, very long uh, matches. 
Yeah, that would have been absolutely grueling, and we, I guess we saw in 2010 why the or and the John Isner rule, I guess, with um with what's happened in the Grand Slams now, his win over Mahu in 2010, and then um in 2018, I think his semi final against uh, Kevin Anderson at Wimbledon went 26 24 in the fifth. So I guess that's why they've tried to change it in the fifth now. But I do I do love a good long match, but. Looking at, at your career, what, one thing that stands out, the 1977 Davis Cup Championship, how does that rank amongst your achievements in your career? And um, You defeated um, Italian legend Adriano Panata, 11-9 in the fifth, and then Corrado Barazzuti in four. Um, how does that rank among your career achievements? Well, look, that was uh, the highlight for all of us because uh, the team had been made up largely of uh, people who'd known each other since we were sort of 10 or 11, Ross Case was in the team and he'd, uh, we'd billeted him when I think in the, uh, we were playing in an under-12 interstate uh, event, teams event, and Phil Dent I'd known from the time I'd played in my very first under-11s when I was nine. And so these friendships went back a long while. Mark Edmondson had joined the team and he played great in the first two rounds. He was injured by the time we got to the finals. Tony Roach, we'd known he was a different age group and he came back to play in the final and played beautifully against Adriano on the opening day and won in straight sets, which got us off to a great start. Uh, but we, ha we had a big year. We played uh, India in uh, Royal Kings Park in the first match and Mark played. Um, uh, interestingly, the, the competition for that single spot was largely between he and uh, Ray Ruffles. And Ray... Uh, saw something in Mark and really, in a way, sort of stood down to allow Mark to play, which uh, yeah, my private thought at the time was probably that Mark, uh, that Ray on the grass court, left-hander on fast grass, was a really uh, still a very top player. Uh, but Mark played beautifully uh, in that match. He played uh, VJ on the opening day, their number one player, and had a win. And uh, I played Dan and uh, VJ's uh, who was not as good as singles, but very good doubles player. And then Phil and I played very well in the doubles, and we, we won that match uh, three love. We then uh, played uh, uh, New Zealand in the second round in Auckland, and we all played very well there at Stanley Street. I think it was maybe it was the last matches played on the grass courts there. And we played our, again, old friends uh, in Oni Parron and. Uh, Brian Fairley and Chris Lewis was the young player coming up in the team and uh, we had a, an excellent series of matches there and got through that one and then the real test was playing um, Argentina and Argentina. Vilas had just won the US Open and he was may have been number one in the world at the time, if not very, very close. And so there was uh, a lot of pressure uh, to make sure we beat Kane. Uh, both Phil and I were playing the singles there and Kane was an excellent uh, play quarter uh, and uh, and we had to win the doubles and uh, as it transpired um, the doubles because it uh, it went so long uh, wasn't finished on the day and we had to conclude the fifth set on the Sunday morning uh, before the singles matches and uh, Vilas was just playing unbelievable tennis and the first game, I think it was two all that I was serving and won the point to Carne, lost the point to Vilas, and that sort of kept going. And then finally, I lost, lose the point to Carne, and so it's a break point. And uh, first game of the, you know, the continuation. 
and I'm trying to nurse the first serve in. I remember it very clearly. It hit the centre line, and there was still dew on the court on the line, and the ball just skidded straight through. And that's what really saved the match because we won that point and won the game and ended up winning the the uh, that doubles match. And that's that was key to getting us through to the finals against Italy, who we'd lost to in the semi-finals in Rome the previous year. Uh, you know, we had a, they had an advantage on clay. We had, had an advantage on grass, and we were able to get up. Yeah, an amazing, amazing achievement uh, to win the Davis Cup. And how how important was the Davis Cup for you as a player? And was that what your main goal was to represent the country and play and play in the Davis Cup? Yes, well, well, it was it was a huge thing for all Australians, and I think we've managed to keep that going. Yeah. There was a distraction when Open Tennis came in, and an enormous prize money was available. Uh, also, uh, initially, contracted professionals weren't allowed to play Davis Cup. So, while I played uh, sixty-eight, sixty-nine, and seventy, when I turned professional or started playing with World Championship Tennis, I was uh, not disqualified from playing until for 71, 72, 73. So I came back in 74 and played regularly after that. Um, yeah, and not always was everybody available because of the, the lure of, of big prize money. So I think we did a very good job of reinstilling that uh, heritage and the pride of uh, playing Davis Cup. And I think that's been carried you know, forward very well. I think it's Disappointing with the change in format um, after you know, more than a hundred years of uh, format that had uh, worked very well to take tennis yeah. to places that otherwise would not have seen top tennis. And I think a lot of the boom in tennis in Argentina was because of that year when Vilas did so well. Uh, they had beaten the Americans, McEnroe and company, in Buenos Aires, which just you know, exploded the game. And as a result, there was tennis facilities built. There was tennis uh, schools sprung up everywhere. And I think at one point, Argentina had more players ranked in the top 50 or top 100 than any other country, and maybe in men's and women's. And it all goes back to the, I think, a big component of that was the Davis Cup being played there and the world's greatest players going there and playing against their great player and really inciting um uh, yeah, a love for the game, which is what used to happen in Australia when the Australian Championship used to move from capital city to capital city and stimulate interest in tennis. And it's interesting to see that since it's been locked in at Melbourne, uh, tennis in Brisbane and tennis in Sydney has really declined. Oh, really? I didn't. I didn't know that fact. So that that's quite interesting. But I was actually going to ask you about the Davis Cup and, and your thoughts on the current changes and, and the lack of home and away ties. And we saw it in February earlier this year when Australia pr- played Brazil, that the atmosphere was there. And then when you look back in Madrid last year, half the crowds were empty. And is it something that the ITF needs to reconsider? It's, it's very interesting. You know, inevitably, when you go out to these events and chat with former players, you know, they, they all know everything. Um, <laughs> but one of the intelligent observations was, uh, that uh, in Madrid, you don't have an enormous multicultural society. And yet in Sydney, which is enormously multicultural, the format of the team's national competition instead of the old New South Wales Championship was enormously successful mm. 
because you had uh, Croats and Serbians and yeah, whoever was playing British and yeah. every country that was represented, there was a diaspora there that came and supported their team. And it was like a home and away Davis Cup match every single day. But that was absent in Madrid because in Madrid, apparently, you got Spanish and that's all you've got. So <laughs> no one's really interested in how the Swedish team's going or how the Australian team's going because there isn't a you know, big population of Swedes or, or Australians. Uh, so that is something to be considered. But I think that the great value that Davis Cup had was that it took tennis to countries that would never see great tennis that was you know, the showcasing of tennis. Uh, it used to be the constitution for the Lawn Tennis Association of Australia was uh, to popularise and perpetuate the participation in lawn tennis. And I think the showcasing of tennis is a big foundation stone of that that uh, lofty ambition which is you know has been has been lost in recent decades yeah and moving back to what you said before about brisbane and sydney the tennis declining uh there would there be is is the atp cup going there every year and bringing and as you mentioned the atmosphere was amazing um in both those cities was bringing that to the the states of New South Wales and Queensland a big help for tennis in those countries? Do you, in those states, do you think? I, I think that I think yeah. The, the first glance was that, that that was a fantastic event, yeah. and hopefully it can uh, happen again and again. It's still a poor cousin compared to having an Australian Open <laughs> uh, in in these places, which had been a test and proven way of. Uh, yeah, the the the, four, the founding fathers had seen that as the way to popularise the sport and really stimulate um, interest in the sport in those cities, and and you know, that was prior to when you know, there was televised matches and such things. So, so that you know, that can offset the need to actually take the event around, but. Uh, um, the you know, New South Wales Hardcore Championship, for instance, had the same format. It it went from one regional town to another regional town each year with that, that express purpose of bringing tennis to a region to popularise and stimulate the game again. Uh, so there is, you know, you've got to look at history to, to see if there's some component that you can learn, albeit you've got to you know, put in a, a modern iteration uh, to see how, how you can adapt to these changing times. Yep, and times are ever-changing. But uh, one more quick one on your career. The double success, the 1975 Australian Open, you and Phil Dent uh, defeated compatriots Bob Carmichael and Alan Stone. And then again in 1982, you teamed up with John Fitzgerald to defeat Americans Andy Andrews and John Sadry. Further five major finals in that and 28 doubles titles. Um, how Looking back as as a Grand Slam champion, is that something? how special is that to... To look back on and and say you know what I I'm a Grand Slam champion. Well, in that case, it would have been we because it was a doubles yeah. team. <laughs> you still are though. Doubles, <laughs> secret, secret to good doubles, getting a good partner. So uh, the the best thing about that is you you've made great friendships, and in yeah. those days, uh, your doubles partner you generally roomed with. So Phil and I roomed together, shared expenses, and uh, and practiced together, and uh, we were great great friends, and still great friends. We talk nearly every week, and if I don't call him, he abuses me, and, uh, and rightly so. He's very, he lives in Texas now with his, his son, and his, his grandson's a, a great young golfer, uh, Declan, so he spends a lot of time 
caddying for young Declan. So, um, and the same with John. John uh, was about ten years younger, and uh, and still is, although he doesn't look it. And <laughs> we 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 became mates, and he started to stay at my house in Sydney, and, and we'd go to Grono's gym and train and practice, and then we we played up and and we went very well as a team. We yeah we we did. Uh, really well. Uh, I can remember very early on, a lob went up and he thought I was going to take it and it wasn't an important point. This is the typical of the humour and I said, John, that was yours. And he's looking at me now, it was definitely mine. He's, I said, what's the point of me having a player 20 years younger, uh, 10 years younger, if you're not going to do the running? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's uh, brilliant. That'd be, yeah, different to today. We had a lot of, a lot of humour. Um, uh, yeah, we always try to make it at somebody else's expense. But uh, there was another time I, we were playing and it had been very noisy. And I, uh, the umpire had asked for quiet. It was pretty quiet. And then I looked up at the umpire and said, could we have quiet, please? He said, Mr. Alexander, it's pretty quiet. I said, it's got to be silent if I'm going to hear John Fitzgerald serve. Because he, he, he didn't have a hard serve. And I was taking the piss out of him for not serving us in a way that you know, one could hear it from about 10 feet away. <laughs> which we still we still joke about. I hardly every whenever I see him, I still bring that one up because oh. I think it's funny, and I'm going to keep saying it until somebody laughs. Yeah, no, well, I'm definitely laughing. That's brilliant. That's um, one of the best sledges I've ever heard on a tennis court. But moving into you moved into the media in 1986, and you were synonymous with Channel 7's tennis coverage throughout my childhood and a lot of people's um, viewing hours of the Australian Open. And how did that come about? And did you prefer playing or commentating? Well, yeah, there comes a time where you can't play anymore. Uh, yeah, nature has a way of telling you. And uh, I had been, I had a base in the US. Yep. And I had to make a choice of, you know, where I was going to live, live, live in the US or, or come back to Australia. Uh, I'd been on the circuit for about 18 years and uh, I was really homesick. Uh, I wanted to come back to Australia. And I, I was afraid of, I was at Peachtree World of Tennis, I'd been their touring pro, and I was afraid that if I stayed there, I'd just sort of become the, the teaching professional at the club and it wouldn't be very challenging. And so I thought I really wanted to get stuck into something. I didn't particularly know what. Um, and uh, a friend of mine, uh, Alan Jones, who'd been a, a, a very good junior player, uh, represent Queensland in Linton Cup, and uh, I'd met him when he was a school teacher at Brisbane. He used to stay at his house uh, during the Queensland tournaments, and we kept friendship. And uh, he, he had been a interestingly a speechwriter for Malcolm Fraser, his uh, speechwriter and uh, sort of personal advisor. And uh, he introduced me to Harry Miller, who was his agent at the time. Harry was very famous theatrical agent and uh you know he really sort of took people in uh, holistically and and he was very keen to get me involved in commentating and as a, a personality on channel seven and uh and so he started building my career and so we did that then i had this idea that i wanted to uh, do tennis camps at uh, mirage resorts i had a friend in atlanta that had a business called uh, vacancy market and uh, I got to finally pitch to Christopher Scase, who was riding high at the time. He owned Channel 7. He owned his company, Quintex, owned Mirage. And I pitched the, the tennis camps 
similar to the John Gardner camps in the US, as a tool to vacancy market his hotel because they were very, very keen that they would never discount their rooms. They wanted to uh, you know, keep the, the price and never to be seen as a discount hotel. And the argument was that in having these events, you could actually charge a premium during low occupancy periods. And uh, this, he understood it in seconds and said, uh, and Alan Stone and I were engaged with this. And he said, great, we'll do it. And so that's Alan Stone and I started doing the, the tennis uh, camps uh, up at Port Douglas and at, and at the Gold Coast. And uh, so that's how I, I sort of got started. So I was working sort of full-time under the Quintex Christopher Scase banner. banner. I, I actually had done one year with um, uh, Channel 9 uh, prior to going with Channel 7. Worked with uh, Tony Trabert, who was their lead commentator with John Newcomb. Uh, must, that must have been 1986, I think. And then by the end of the year, I then, uh, November, December, I started working for Channel, Channel 7. And I think we did, a, we did a trial year. And Harry's idea was, don't worry about even getting paid. We pay them to get you on. That's how, you know, that's how good this opportunity is. And after the, the trial year, they agreed to uh, put me onto a longer contract, probably two years. <laughs> but I stayed with them until uh, from then until I went into politics in uh, two, the summer of 2010 would have been my last year at Channel 7. So, yep. so whatever that was from 86 till then, sort of 20-something years. Yep. I also did about 20 years with uh, BBC. Yes, I, I have seen that, and yeah, the, I think the what would it have been the two thousand the Federer Murray final might have been your your last match before the before the venture into politics, and we'll ask you about that and what what brought that on, and um and what made you want to get into federal parliament? I didn't I didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, I had uh, had a bruising experience with trying to. Uh, I'd, my main activity, actually, during that time was uh, starting Next Generation Clubs with David Lloyd, who had been very successful in developing clubs in the UK. And we had been successful at developing uh, Memorial Drive in Adelaide, Royal Kings Park in Perth, and a very nice centre in Ride, the Ride Aquatic Centre, which was for the Olympic Games and the Next Generation Club there. And then I tried to develop uh, White City, and we'd met a lot of uh, uh, opposition from a group who wanted to take the site, uh, which eventually they were successful in doing that in the Maccabi and the Harkoa clubs. And uh, it was a very bruising uh, experience. Uh, I thought very unfair and unjust in many ways. And I had friends that had been with me through that and their uh, suggestion uh, was um, I had assisted Bob Giltman, my old mate, uh, in a fundraiser uh, to go into local politics. And somebody from the Liberal Party approached me and said, gee, you'd make a great politician. And I think, gee, the criteria is not too great. You know, you can do an option uh, and you, you've got the qualification of politician. I've got it. But anyway, this lady wouldn't take no for an answer and she insisted that I meet with um, Brendan Nelson who was my local member which I did and Brendan 
uh, was a great, great person. We're still friends. And he, he said some very funny things. He said he, he started off life wanting to be a great tennis player. And I said, yeah, me too. And we had the same humour. So he started playing at Memorial Drive and he was aware of what we'd done there. And, and his partner was Gillian. My partner at the time was Gillian. He had a daughter, Emily. I had a daughter, Emily. And anyway, he said, um, you know, I know you're not interested in politics. We, we talked for about two hours. And uh, but he said, why don't you just join the local party? I won't run it about a year's time, and you know, maybe you'll rethink it by then. But you know, attend some branch meetings and just see what it's about. So um, I thought that the least I could do, because he was so decent, was join uh, the branch. So on the night that I was going up to join it after another terrible day at White City, where locked in battle in the High Court, the High Court case was sort of probably underway at that time. I got in the car and there was this headline, Brendan Nelson's retire, retiring and there's going to be a, a by-election. Uh, I, I think I knew what a by-election was, but I uh, didn't know the next thing. Um, but uh, So I thought, oh, well, that'll make the meeting interesting. So anyway, I went to the meeting and they accepted me into the branch and all I could think of was uh, the, the old Groucho Marx saying I wouldn't want to be a club if they didn't take me as a member. Uh, and so... Um, I get home, I've got to mow the courts at White City early in the morning and go down to Melbourne to help Paul McNamee with a fundraiser the next day. So I'm in bed, it's uh, sort of the winter, and uh, at about I'm asleep at about 10.30 or something. The phone rings and there's a journalist saying, oh, it's obvious it's a setup for you for the uh, pre-selection uh, for Bradfield. And I'm thinking, I wonder what a pre-selection is. <laughs> I assured him that this wasn't the case. And then he said, oh, I know you met with Brendan Nelson. I said, oh, yeah, I met with him to tell him that I'm really not interested. But it's a bit of a coincidence you joined the party on the day he retires. I said, oh, well, that's just a coincidence. So anyway, we talk and I go back to bed and then Michelle Grattan calls. So I, did, I had heard of Michelle Grattan, a very famous uh, journalist, and uh, and she has the same theory. And I go, no, that's totally, totally incorrect. I don't not, not true. She then called back at about one o'clock in the morning to say that she had emailed me what I had said to verify. And I said, no, Michelle, I've got to mow the lawns at seven o'clock. I've got to go to bed, please, Michelle, let me go to bed. Anyway, I think I've only just gone to sleep and my mother calls up and says, oh, there's this most ridiculous story on the morning's news. Um, it says that you're going into politics. Like she's <laughs> laughing like anything else. And I'm, all I could think of, God, was I drunk last night or what? And I was, no, I didn't, I didn't even have a drink. I mean, I, di I didn't say anything that could have led anyone into the belief that I was going into politics. So anyway, I, I turn on the news and then I learned, you know, subsequently what a slow news day is. So when there's a slow news day, you've got to invent some news. Yep. And there they had me playing tennis against John Fitzgerald, probably black and white footage, I'm not sure. And... Uh, and saying that I'm going into politics. So I thought, well, that's interesting. And so the phone started to ring all day. And some of my mates who'd been with me in this uh, episode of White City said, you know, it'd be a really good thing for you to get involved in, just to get something positive to do, just for the exercise. Yeah, you'll never win, but go in for the exercise. You'll learn something and be good, you know, yeah. give us something to do. So... Then, then the next thing is John Howard contacts me and says, oh, would you like to come and have a meeting? And I said, yeah, sure. I'd met him a couple of times before. We played uh, cricket once and I'd seen him at the ballet the 
week after he'd gotten elected, was, he was there with his daughter, was very you know, keen on ballet. I don't know what I was doing there, but and uh, anyway, he said, well, come and, come and have a chat. And, uh, and he said, well, you can't win Bradfield pre-selection, but would you run for Benelon? We really need someone to run for Benelon. And uh, so anyway, I said, oh, yeah, sure. So I then, I didn't get pre-selected at Bradfield, but Benelong's right next door. And so I went for that and did get pre-selected. And then that was in December. And then straight after the tennis, you know, literally 1st of February, I started campaigning uh, with a guy called Mitch Yetis. We door knocked 10,000 homes over the next uh, seven or eight months. And uh, Maxine McHugh had won the seat off uh, John Howard. She was, you know, absolutely outstanding in doing that, and a very decent person. I, mean, I thought the world of her. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, and I still don't know how we won. But uh, I think there was a big swing uh, to the uh, Liberal uh, National Party at the time under Tony Abbott's leadership, and uh, and I think we got a lot of points for how much effort we were putting into it in all the door knocking and going to shopping centres and being on bus stops and train stations and handing out and genuinely engaging with people. And uh, and we got it up and then we've, we've done very well since then to hold on to the seat against some very you know, strong, strong opposition. Uh, you've done very, very well, John. And uh, if I may say so myself, you're one of um, tennis' best exponents in this country, whether it's uh, through your playing, your media... And even in politics, you've been absolutely brilliant in your career. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Breakpoint Podcast today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Val. Thank you for chatting. It's nice to reminisce over these days. They were great days. and I can't stand old fogies who say, oh, the days you know, yesterday were so much better than they are today. Tennis is at an all-time high. You've got three of the all-time greatest players in Djokovic, Lendl and uh, uh, Federer. Um, vying for the number one spot. You've just gone past the era of the Williams sisters who are the two greatest women tennis players of all time. Um, the women's game is right open. Uh, the top three men you know, can't go on forever, but it is a great time. But that's not to discount the time when we had, uh, you know, as our leading players, uh, Laver, Rosewall and Newcomb, uh, and Emerson, and if you compare those four players with the top four players of today, they stack up pretty well, which tells you how great Australia was as a country. So, as Donald Trump would say, let's make Australia great again. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the perfect way to end. Thank you, John. Yes, nice talking to you about. Bye. Alexander there on Breakpoint Podcast, but the guests don't stop here. We've got one more big one for you. It's Chris Cuccioni. Joel, our second special guest on today's show, is a man that we've watched for many, many years. He's uh, known for his wonderful serve volley trademark, former world number 67 in singles, number 38 in doubles, currently 283rd, and more importantly, has a winning record over Rafael Nadal. His name is Chris Guccione. Chris, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you going? Yeah, good. Thank you. And uh, yeah, not a problem. It's uh, it's good to be here and, and chat to you guys. But uh, yeah, all good here. How's everything been going with the with the pandemic? It's obviously not not a great time. You're a Melbourneite like us, so it's um it's obviously not been fun. But some um, things are starting to ease up a little bit now. So t- talk us through how you've been uh, tracking through uh, through the COVID lockdown. Yeah, it's been difficult, obviously for everyone. But um, 
yeah, just we took it as a good opportunity to to spend time with the family and uh, the kids' homeschooling kept us quite busy. And um, fortunately, now we're actually able to get out and do a bit of coaching and a bit of training and, and we have a bit more freedom. So hopefully we can continue on the right path in that regard. And looking to get back onto the tour before um, when 2021 rolls around? Yeah, we'll have to see. Um, obviously, this was... This was the year I was going to travel and uh, play some tournaments and try to get back out there. But I've got to sort out what exactly is happening with my protected ranking because I know there were some rules around that with um, having to use it within a certain time frame. And I'm not sure if they're adjusting those rules or because the tour is technically running, the time is ticking. So I'll try to sort that out at the end of the year. But it'd be nice to be able to play a little bit next year. But um, We'll have to see how that pans out. And looking at that protected ranking, it's something that's often sort of perplexed me with with how it actually works. So you have to apply for it, and then you get a certain amount of tournaments that you ha- that you can play with it. But is it more? Do you have a time limit within that period where you have to play a certain amount of tournaments within like a certain number of months, or is it is it just sort of as you go? Yeah. So it depends how long you're out injured for. Yeah. I think if you're out for between 6 to 12 months, when you come back, you have nine tournaments to use it within, I believe, nine months. If you're out longer than 12 months, you get 12 uses within 12 months from your first use. Um, but obviously that's been really messy this, this year. Yeah, it was great to see you uh, at the ATP Cup earlier in the year. Chris, feels like an absolute lifetime ago now when, when that was on, but um, it was just a really great concept, I thought. Like, I mean, Val and I probably had our doubts about how it would go. It kind of felt like a bit of a, almost a second Davis Cup, but in the end, it went really well, I think. We both enjoyed it. We loved the atmosphere. So how was it to actually play in? Yeah, we were a bit apprehensive as well in the beginning. Some of the players weren't sure what to expect, but um, it was clear from from day one that the crowd really got behind it in all states and the players loved the format. Um, obviously, uh, there's probably a few tweaks here and there that, that, that will be made, but hopefully um, I'm not sure what the restrictions are going to be like this January in regards to crowds and travel between states and things like that, but it would be awesome to to have that event continue to grow and be be as popular as it was. And the atmosphere that um, that we, we saw at the ATP Cup, you were obviously on hand for, for the quarterfinal win over Great Britain. Talk talk us through that and, and just how electric it was when Nick and Demon actually got through over um, over Salisbury and Murray because it was, it was genuinely unbelievable watching from home, um, let alone actually being there. Yeah, that was... Um... That was an amazing match to watch. Obviously, you know, with the ATP Cup being in Australia, the the crowds were always fantastic for us. But yeah, the one against Great Britain in the quarters, um, yeah, that was. I mean, that was uh, it was really fantastic to be courtside for there. Uh, I mean, before that, before the doubles match, I mean, I was slated to play with Piersy in that deciding rubber. But obviously, after the singles, you can reevaluate and um, fair enough that Demon and, and Nick 
put their hand up and Leighton gave them a go-ahead to to step out there. But yeah, it was it was a very up and down match emotionally. Um, there was some great stuff, some nervous moments. Great Britain had a big chance. I think Murray missed a fairly routine shot, and mm. then there were some big players from from Demon and Nick towards the end. But yeah, unbelievable to watch. Everyone was everyone was so pumped, and like you touched on before, it felt like a Davis Cup sort of atmosphere for us. So we're all getting involved and um, enjoying every moment of it. Yeah, it was a brilliant match to watch and overall uh, a brilliant tournament as well. But one of your other teammates, Chris, John Millman, may as well just touch on him very quickly. Of course, won his first career title overnight in uh, Nurse Sultan. Just a, a word on him. and I mean, couldn't go to a more deserving guy. Yeah, um, yeah, I saw that this morning. I I, uh, I couldn't think of somebody who's more deserving. He's one of the hardest workers, great bloke. Um, he'll tick all the boxes, do all the right things, get out there give 100% every time, um, which, you know, nobody can ask more than that. And it's, it's very well deserved. He's put a lot of hard work. He's gone through some, some tough times with injury early, early in his career. Um, so, yeah, really happy to see him, him get the win and uh, hopefully he can continue a bit of form towards the end of the year. Fingers crossed. We do love Johnny and hopefully Millmania can continue sweeping the globe. But Chris, talking about injuries, you've obviously um, had, a, had a few problems yourself with the Achilles and it, it plagued um, played your game for, for a fair while there from probably, I think I was reading 2011 till about 2017. You took a few years off. And um, what caused the um, the idea for a comeback and and um, and how, how well was it going um, that it made your decision quite easy to actually come back and, and have a crack at um, going back on tour? Yeah, so well, I, I did my, I had a tear in my Achilles, um, well, I think I was 23, long time ago now. Um, but obviously I was very heavily focused on singles and I was doing okay at the time. Um, took almost a year off to try to recover and it just, it was never the same when I came back. So I I tried to play singles for a little bit, didn't quite get there. And every time I had a few wins, I'd, I'd have to have a few weeks off. So decided to focus more on doubles. And even like through the, through those years where I was playing doubles and, and doing okay, I was never able to train properly or play pain free. So it was always it was always bothering me, um, and then sort of the opportunity came up where you know the Achilles would get worse. Um, I have two kids um, who were growing up and starting school that year when when I was deciding whether to continue or to to stop. Um, so yeah, so there was a few factors that that pl- that went into that decision, but the main one was just I wasn't enjoying it. You know, I was travelling in pain all the time, away from the family, you know, there's, there's a lot of different um, circumstances. But, there, I was, so I started coaching in Greenville in Melbourne. Um, so we've got a, a local club here. We coach mainly after school hours, really love that. And then after almost two years of just doing that and not much else, uh, the Achilles sort of started to feel like my good one. So I had no pain, no no awareness of it. So I was able to start running and and training a bit harder and got back into shape and had no mishaps with it, no soreness. So um, 
yeah, put my hand up to, to use my protected ranking and, and get back out there. And yeah, the start of the year went really well. The ATP Cup and the Australian Open. It was awesome to get back out there and play some tennis again. It's just, you know, unfortunate events this year have put a stop to a lot of people's plans, unfortunately. I know they really have. It's been um, it's been an absolutely torrid year, and I think we've seen that firsthand with the lockdown that we've had in Melbourne. But speaking about your career, Chris, and um, you you spoke about your singles game, and you did have some phenomenal results on the singles arena. And one of those weeks was in Adelaide in two thousand and seven, where you reached your maiden ATP final and lost to a man that uh, people may know as Novak Djokovic in his only his <laughs> third career title, um, which is which is just unbelievable. You got a set off him, but that week. You beat uh, Richard Gasquet. You beat Juan Martín Del Potro, who you also have winning records against. Um, talk us through the week and and that first final in Adelaide, because I remember watching it clear as day, and um and just how you felt walking out on court, and um and just the maybe even the nerves of you know your first ATP final. Yeah, that was uh, obviously a fantastic week. I was playing really well. The um, I always enjoyed playing playing in Adelaide and tournaments in Australia, but had some some really good wins. I remember um, having some close matches against uh, Gasquet and Del Potro and just able to get the win. But um, yeah, that week was, it was a little bit, they had a new format for that tournament. It was actually a round robin yeah. tour event. So we had to go through one sort of pre-round to get into the group stage, get through the groups. And that's where I played, uh, starting from the quarterfinals, Gasquet and Del Potro. Um, but yeah, obviously, Played really well to be able to beat those those caliber of players, and yeah, ended up losing to a, an okay player in Djokovic in the finals. So. <laughs> Some of those players that you do have a, a leading head-to-head record against, Chris. I mean, a pretty impressive. Uh, Gasquet, uh, Del Potro, as we've already spoken about, Ferrero, Thomas Burdich, and Rafael Nadal. I mean, that must all, all those names, not least Rafa, that must be a, a real source of pride for you. Yeah, it's. Uh... You know, my game style matched up better against some players than others. Um, uh, against Ferrero, for example, he stayed way behind the baseline, just tried to get in the point and, you know, start start the grind. But I'm, I was able to hit my spots with my serve, get into the net and angle the volleys off and, and sort of get ahead of him that way. But, um, yeah, obviously had some good wins. I would have loved to have had a lot more good wins and have a bit more consistency, but... Um, yeah, when when I was playing well and serving well, I was able to to beat some high caliber players. And looking against high caliber players in two thousand and eight, you made the final of Sydney. That week, you beat Leighton in straight sets, um, Thomas Burdich and Radek Stepanek in three as well. And then, unfortunately, going down to Dmitry Tursunov seven six seven six. What are your memories of that week as well? And um, was that probably one of the be- the best week that you had collectively on tour? Um, yeah, I'd say so. That, that Sydney tournament was always historically very, very strong. Uh, the cut there was very high. It's a little different now because people sort of take that week off. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously beating Leighton, you know, it was a, a huge result for me. And he still he still gives it to me about that match because <laughs> he had break points and I didn't. But I said, oh, I got the win in the end. He got revenge on me actually a couple of weeks after this train opening in Memphis for that one. Yeah. So, And he beat me a little more convincingly. Um, but yeah, Burnich always did well against, so that was another good win. Stepanek, I'm pretty sure I had a losing record, but I was able to get him that time. Uh, the final, I remember, 
I actually played very well, but Tursunov was was too strong that day. I was, I was happy with the way I played, but he was just a little too good of a day in that final. Yeah, well, you didn't get broken that day, so I think that's the most frustrating thing where I remember yeah. watching it and was going, oh, my God, he hasn't gotten broken. And Tursunov just lifted in those tie breaks. It was it was frustrating to watch, but um, it was it was great to see you have some success. But talking about success, uh, five doubles titles from two thousand and ten to twenty sixteen. Um, three of them in Newport in uh, in Rhode Island. And how special was it going back there? You know, winning in twenty ten, then again with Leighton in two thousand and fourteen, and then again with Grothy in um in twenty sixteen. How special was um was that location for you? Yeah, it's, it's it's a funny one. Like, there's a lot of history involved in that tournament. They have the Hall of Fame presentation there. Generally, um, the courts there are hit and miss. They mm. there's a lot. They get a lot of complaints there. But I think as a grass court, that's how grass. So in between there and Wimbledon, maybe Wimbledon's like it's so hard and flat. It's almost like a hard court. Uh, whereas Newport's at the opposite end where. You get bumps and dips and bad bounces here and there, um, but yeah, it was an always an interesting one. You could have, you could lose to anyone there or, or beat anyone there, but with uh, if you had a good serve there, it was very hard to get broken because you didn't know what was going to happen off the court. Sometimes it stayed low, kicked up. So yeah, the first title with Carsten Ball, obviously big lefty, another big serve um, with Leighton. Not the strongest, uh, but he makes up for his return. So we're able to break more often there, which is huge in Newport because it is easier to hold your serve. And then obviously with Grothy, we were just trying to hold serve and, and, and jag a break if we could somewhere along the line. Just to wrap up, Chris, uh, this is one that we like to ask uh, the players that we, we get on the show. What's uh, What are the best and worst places that you've travelled to for tennis? Ooh. Outside of Australia, we go um, worst place. Not, I mean, not early on. I played a challenger, and it was difficult going just with food and accommodation and things like that. In there was a place called Fergana in Uzbekistan. Oh, Uzbekistan! Another, another one for Uzbekistan. I think we've had oh, that, yeah, before. Yeah, that before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, Marinko Marinko had some um, had some fairly choice words for for Uzbekistan. Yeah. It was very funny. That was difficult, even getting to the tournament and then eating and then the accommodation not the best. So that was that was a challenging one. Um, but most of the time, we're very blessed as tennis players. We travel to nice places and nice hotels and um, and good food everywhere. Uh, best place, oh. Hard, I would say obviously a lot of nice places. As far as like outside of the tournament, maybe Acapulco was pretty nice at the resort there on the water. I don't know, there's so many. In Indian Wells, Palm Springs is awesome. There used to be an LA tournament, Las Vegas tournament. Um yeah, lots lots of good places to travel to. So very fortunate. Yeah, the Acapulco, what the location genuinely looks amazing. It's um like the, you, they show the camera panning over onto the ocean, and yeah, it's a tournament that I would absolutely love to get to. But um, they do. Actually, start... I, play, I played a challenger early on in Hawaii, which was pretty oh, good in Waikoloa. 
that would have been very nice. Just <laughs> very. It doesn't happen anymore, though. No, nah, it would. It'd be, that would have been so chilled. You get off the court, just go straight to the beach and just relax. <laughs> it'd be great. Um, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. You've had a wonderful career. Hopefully, um, there's a bit more left in it, and hopefully, we can see you in uh, in uh, Australia. Hopefully, the tours do go ahead. Um, it looks as though things might start to tick along ever so slightly now, which is fantastic to see. So hopefully you're there at the forefront in uh, in the lead-up events and at the Australian Open in the doubles arena as well. Chris Gucciani, thank you so much for joining us on Breakpoint. Cheers, guys. Thanks for having me. Chris Gucciani there joining us on Breakpoint. It's an absolute pleasure to have him on. And Joel, I have a, a little story. I forgot to mention this to Chris on the show. When I was back in my uh, my retail days working at, uh, at Foot Locker High Point, I had Chris come into into the store and um and got an autograph he was he was an absolute legend and um yeah continuing continuing that trend he's a superstar and a really humble guy and um we wish him all the best here on breakpoint podcast i remember growing up that was one of my first sort of favorite players on tour and watching him with that serve volley and i wanted to try and make my serve as as hard as gucci's but never could um because i was only 11 so it was never going to be like that but um yeah he's, he's he's a wonderful advocate of the game in this country and um, one of the unsung heroes of tennis in australia um but joel it's benoit time he was number one seed in uh in nur sultan last week didn't get the chocolates lost fairly early and um well he's uh we're going to try and get him on before the end of the year he said 2020 is done for him we are going to track down benoit Hopefully, within the next few weeks, we can have him on the show. And uh, but I'll, I'll hand the reins over to you this week, Joel, for our Benoit and who you think it uh, who you think it should go to. Yeah, well, for Benoit of the week this week, there's really only one choice: Alex Berev. I can't yeah. imagine having a worse week ever in history. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. One's carrying a child that you no longer see. And the other one accuses you of beating her up. That is just a shocking week. And as we said earlier, I'm not going to elaborate on it too much, but as we said earlier, if what, what Olya Sharapova is saying is true and we believe her, we got to emphasize that, we believe her, then he deserves what's coming to him. And that's going to be a yep. very, very big hit. Uh, whether it's a legal hit or a financial hit, um, he will get hit hard. Either, but not just that. The reputational hit as well. Oh yeah, of that's course, going yeah, that's going to come, and I don't think there's any recovering from that. Mm. Nothing, because once you do something like that, people just lose respect. It's not, and and yeah, it's we do believe her, and yeah, all the best to Olya Sharapova, and hopefully that she can, um, hopefully that she can overcome all of this and and live her life as best she can after after this ordeal because it's not fun and it's not it's not really what anybody wants to be hearing um uh, in any in any sort of environment let alone the sporting arena as well so um you know um yeah if if domestic violence is one of the worst things and especially that was such a poor thing about lockdown that people were actually stuck in violent relationships and uh, and it was so good the australian government was able to come out and and give help to those people and give refuge to a lot of those people for funding. And yeah, I think it's a, it was a fantastic initiative and we need to stamp this, this crap out because it's not right. It is absolutely not right. So 
hopefully Olya is okay. And um, yeah, uh, deservedly, our Benoit of the Week goes, a very serious Benoit of the Week goes to um, Alexander Zverev. But Joel, thank you very much for your efforts on today's show. It has been an absolute pleasure. Big thank you to uh, John Alexander. Big thank you to Chris Guccione as well. But uh, Joel, you get the biggest thanks. You, you were here with me celebrating John Millman's triumph. No, it's been good, Val, and uh, yeah, great celebration. Hopefully more Normania. It it can't stop. I want to see more of it. No, well, the new pandemic, and it's going to be a good pandemic, hashtag Millmania. So, look, hopefully. I don't know. Hopefully. Imagine he wins Paris as well. God, the champagne will be flying everywhere. We'll actually drink some champagne on the show next week if he does win in Paris. But, Joel Fritchie, thank you very much. Thanks, Val. Um, remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Breakpoint Pod, Facebook Breakpoint Podcast, and Instagram as well, and subscribe to all of our podcasting platforms. We're on Wooshka, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Google Podcasts, we're on Spotify, wherever you get your shows, we are there. I've been Val Febo, Joel Frucci on the other line. Enjoy this week of Millmania, everybody, because it's going to take the world by a storm. We'll catch you next week.